This is TechSnap, episode 407. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm quite pleased to be joined once again by Jim. Hello, Jim. What's up, Wes? Well, I've been thinking about building myself a new computer, maybe a few. I've I've been sketching out designs. Everyone around me, well, I can't help notice they've been they've been talking about AMD and something of the renaissance they're having. And I've been following the news stories. I, I couldn't help notice you recently put out an article over at ours, and I thought. Maybe you could advise me, is now the time to jump ship to AMD? Now is absolutely the time to jump ship to AMD. If you're building a desktop box, you know, it always feels a little weird to take marketing hype at face value. And at E3, when AMD debuted the Ryzen, their their hype guy there said, you know, after this, I don't know why anybody would buy an Intel CPU, which sounded pretty freaking bold. But, um, you know, the, the company's own numbers really backed that up. And more importantly, in the uh, you know in the three weeks since the show, uh, the review hardware has gone out to all the major sites, and uh, they have actually started shipping those things retail. And even end user benchmarks have started showing up at you know sites like CPUbenchmark.net, and they weren't kidding. Uh, we've got the real numbers now. People using these things out in the field, so to speak. Yeah, you know when you're looking at CPUs, there's kind of this golden triad that you should be looking at, right? You you can almost always pick you know one part to beat another part in any one of your your three uh, you know your your three golden criteria, which is price, performance, and power usage. Right? Um, you know, even when AMD was in its absolute darkest days, like in the bulldozer pile driver era, you could find a pile driver part that would uh, eke out a performance win over an Intel i7. Sure. But the problem is, you know, it would actually f- frequently cost more than the Intel part. And worse, it would, you know, drink three times as much power and uh, throw off enough heat that, you know, you better hope you live in Minnesota. But uh, the Ryzen 3000 series, man, um, you know, whichever thing you're looking for, if you're looking for the lower price, if you're looking for the higher performance, if you're looking for low power usage, they've got it all. You can beat the competing Intel part on two, if not all three of those categories across the entire lineup. One thing you pointed out to me, and I was kind of surprised to see, you frequently hear single-threaded performance touted as, you know, this this area where if, if that's what your use case is, if you really need to optimize, Intel's still the way to go. But with with this latest lineup, is that still true? Yeah, I want to be really careful answering that one, Wes, because if you're living like a normal person, no, it's absolutely not true. <laughs> okay, well, what, is, what does it mean to be normal here, Jim? Well, so, you know, there are reasonable CPUs to buy, and I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for this, but, um, you know, if you're buying something like an i9-9900K and overclocking the max out of it and, you know, fluid cooling and everything else, um, probably Intel is still going to get a slight win all the way up there in, you know, crazy pants, you know, $1,000 plus CPU territory. But when you look at uh, reasonably priced performance CPUs, like, for example, on the Intel side, that's going to be your i7-9700 or even the i7-9700K, 
um, you're going to see a win on the AMD side. If you compare an i7-9700 CPU to the new uh, Ryzen 7 3700X, the Ryzen part is going to beat it on performance, both single-threaded and multi-threaded. Uh, it's going to do it with uh, the same or less power consumption, and the price is pretty close to on par. Um, if price being pretty close to on par isn't good enough for you and you want to actually save $100 over the Intel part, you can drop down to the Ryzen 5 3600 and you're actually still beating the Intel i7 now in price at about 100 bucks cheaper. Um, you're either same or less in power, probably less. They're both 65-watt TDP parts. And you're actually still beating the i7-9700 in both single-threaded and multi-threaded performance. It's pretty crazy. Wow, that sounds like a steal. Okay, so the case is great in in the desktop world. Are we so lucky for laptops? We don't know yet. Um, I'm really hopeful because, I mean, the it's pretty clear the thing that has made the huge win for AMD here. They've always struggled with power consumption. Uh, I, yeah, I should say by always. For the last 20 years or so, they've struggled with power consumption. Right, and that's only become more important as we're concerned about energy expenditure, both for, for price and for other reasons. So 20 years ago, 1999-2000, about the only way most people really cared about power consumption was as it translated to heat generation, and can I actually keep this thing running cool? Um, that was about the only way people really care. These days, people will get really excited over, you know, hey, is this a 65-watt part, an 85-watt part, or 125-watt part? Um, nobody's running 100-watt incandescent light bulbs anymore. You know, everybody's got CFLs or LEDs that are only drinking, you know, two or three watts. And everybody's really watching the power bill. So it makes a difference all the way around. But again, all this really does translate into performance as well. Uh, you know, in those dark days of pile driver. Uh, in order to even come close to competing on the performance side, AMD was having to put out these crazy 225 watt thermal design power, you know, desktop CPUs where, you know, Intel was in the, yeah, they were at about a third of that. You know, it was competing with 85 watt parts. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Uh, AMD has successfully gotten their dies shrunk down to seven nanometers, where Intel has still not gotten 10 nanometers all shaken out. They're still up there at 14 nanometer. And that really has been where the difference has been. AMD's been able to, you know, slide the performance slider way on up without going past Intel on the, on the power side. So you've got, you know, cooler, chips that uh, drink less power and are performing as well or better. Now, hopefully that's going to translate into the mobile world as well, because the big thing, it's it's been possible even in the darkest days to make a case for like, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and I want to make sure Intel's got competition. So I'm going to buy the AMD desktop CPU. It's good enough, right? Like I can live with it being yeah 20 or 25% lower performance. Uh, the price is you know, maybe, maybe the same or lower at that level. And whatever right worse but not that much worse yeah it's not that much worse i can deal with it it hasn't been that way in the mobile world you know in the mobile world uh battery life and heat generation has just been terrible for amd to the point that you know you're not even seeing amd mobile cpus and anything but you know like the cheapest consumer garbage you know on a walmart shelf or whatever yeah just the 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 bottom of the shelf quite literally yeah but now again the shoe is on the other foot you know amd has got half the die size that intel does you know they're making these really low power desktop chips hopefully they'll be able to do the same thing in mobile if they can do that and you know they're they're taking the crown on desktop and mobile that 
that's going to be a serious new era. All right. All right. Well, there's one other sector we got to touch on. What's happening in, in the server space? Because that's another area where A, power usage is more important than it, than it has been in the past, and B, Intel has dominance. Well, you know, again, right now, we're basically just hoping. Uh, they haven't launched the new Epic parts yet. Those are due to launch in August. But um, I'm a little more confident about those than I am the laptop parts. I mean, I, I think there's every chance the laptop parts will be great, but it really just kind of feels like we're guessing. The Epic stuff, though, I, I kind of I'm having a lot of trouble seeing what could be going wrong in between the desktop side and the server side. It seems like a much easier iteration. And Epic was also a lot closer to Xeon than uh, Ryzen had been to the core series, in my opinion. I had actually already switched over to Epic CPUs in my server build because, you know, on server builds, I'm a lot more focused on massively multi-threaded performance than I am in per core anyway. And you could get really inexpensive, really high-performance CPUs with Epic with tons of cores. So, you know, what was there not to love? With that said, uh, you know, a, a Xeon Silver would still significantly beat, uh, you know, a similarly priced Epic for single-threaded performance in an instance where single-threaded performance was a really big issue for you, despite it, you know, being a server that's presumably doing a lot of stuff at once. Uh, hopefully, you know, with the new Epic parts, we're going to see AMD doing the same thing there that they did with Ryzen, uh, 3000 series and, uh, just turn it up and blowing Intel out of the water across the board. But, you know, even without looking into Epic, um, a lot of my server builds are, you know, they're not necessarily for companies with unlimited budget. You know, uh, the cost of the, the hardware does actually count for something and, one thing that I don't think enough people are talking about is how, you know, now the Ryzen series, we're starting to see motherboards popping out that directly and explicitly support ECC RAM. Now you have this option of deploying like, you know, right next to me, a few feet away, I've got a Ryzen 7 2700, you know, the last generation of Ryzen uh, system. And uh, that box has 32 gigs of ECC RAM in it. And, you know, every I've tested everything on it. The ECC is enabled. It's working. Everything's golden. Well, now you're talking about being able to build a server for, uh, you know, about $1,000 less storage with 32 gigs of ECC RAM and an eight core 16 thread processor that beats the absolute pants off of a, uh, off of a Xeon or an Epic part for single threaded performance. So if you don't need the massive amounts of cores that you get, you know, like with an Epic, or if you don't need, and this is usually going to be your big bottleneck when you talk about larger server builds, you need tons of RAM. Well, you know, you're still limited to 64 gigs of RAM. So if you need more than that, you're going to have to go Epic or Xeon, whichever side you want. But if 64 gigs or less is sufficient for you, now you're looking at being able to build a really inexpensive machine that has, uh, you know, you've got ECC RAM, you've got really hot performance, and, uh, you know, if you get, like, one of the new ASRock rack motherboards, I mean, you even have enterprise-grade features like IPMI on board. It's pretty sweet. Wow. You, I think I think you've just sold me my next rig. Wow, that's exciting. And either way... I'm just glad to see this sort of healthy competition re-entering the CPU market, and it seems like we as consumers are already benefiting. Absolutely. And you know, Wes, uh, you'll get to leapfrog me. Um, you can get the same motherboard, but you can get one of the new Ryzen 3000 series parts. Um, I've been very happy with that Ryzen 7 2700 I bought because I didn't need the absolute highest performance ever. Sure. But again, the funny thing about that is, you know, the... Uh, 
the the Ryzen twenty seven hundred that I have, it's about twenty percent slower than uh you know a comp an otherwise comparable uh you know i seven eighty seven hundred. But that's not a fair comparison because I needed ECC and I couldn't get that with the i seven. Uh, really, the fair comparison is between that Ryzen twenty seven hundred and you know like a Xeon D fifteen forty one, or you know God help you and you know an Intel i three eighty one hundred or similar. And even the last gener- generation of Ryzen kicks the absolute crap out of either of those. Wow! All right, that is uh, just a little bit impressive and makes me really excited to see all the future chips they're going to be putting out soon. If, like me, you're staying tuned for some future exciting updates about AMD chips, well, stay tuned with us, too, over at techsnap.systems. There you can find easy ways to keep in touch with us and, of course, our RSS feeds and all the other great ways to find our content. Speaking of server builds, while out there in data centers everywhere, it's been a bit of a rough week, month, I I don't know quite how long, but I've seen a flurry of news articles going up just about some of the the quote-unquote major outages we've seen, including big ones at Cloudflare, stuff in Google's cloud, problems at Amazon, and of course, Microsoft. Jim, you noticed this trend too. What's going on? Internet's on fire, yo. Stuff's broke. Um... Yeah, it's it's been pretty crazy. We have been seeing a lot more major outages than we're accustomed to seeing from big providers. Verizon broke the internet again with, uh, you know, as usual, another uh, BGP misconfiguration. They published some bad routes. And uh, the thing about those BGP, you know, bad route publishes is they kind of break everything, right? Because you end up uh, with what looks like breakages in other big services like for example when the raspberry pi 4 debuted uh you know they did kind of a pr stunt of debuting the pi 4 uh with the launch day site hosted on a cluster of actual pi 4s and uh you know our buddy joe made this really snarktastic tweet about it and said you know oh yeah i'm sure the the x86 manufacturers are running scared and you know showed a screenshot of the site actually being down of course, the Pi folks fired right back, and they said, hey, it's not our fault. Cloudflare was down. Well, Cloudflare wasn't actually down either. That was Verizon's BGP routing screw-up. Right. I mean, when you mess things up at the, the IP layer in the connections between different regions of the internet, basically everything else comes down with it, and it affects anyone connected to you. Yeah, and the problem with BGP is just, you know... I mean, it's it's a lot like SMTP. It's one of those very early days protocols, and it's designed it's designed around this idea that you know everybody is trustworthy and everybody is competent and everybody is doing their best job all the time. So it's possible for you know uh, it makes big news when Verizon screws up BGP because they're a little too big usually to be the ones that do that. But routinely, BGP screw ups screw up large portions of the internet, even when tiny little ISPs you've never heard of somewhere in Malaysia publish the wrong route, uh, that route can end up getting adopted worldwide and knocking big chunks of the internet offline. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a problem with with some solutions available. They're just not always adopted because, you know, there are ways to to validate, to filter, to, to check routes before they propagate and try to prevent some of this damage. Now, of course, mistakes always happen. There's always going to be some problems, but there's no need for this to happen all the darn time. That, that, that's another thing, you know, part of the difference between some little no-name 
ISP in the middle of nowhere that publishes a bad route versus, you know, when Verizon does it. So the little no name ISP, it's kind of understandable, you know, they're, they're doing their best to make things work and they may not be up to all the latest standards, but Verizon is huge. Verizon is a literal giant. They absolutely should have been using PKI certifications that would have prevented these bad routes from getting adopted and published. Exactly. Now, what struck me as just a a little bit humorous is not too long after that kerfuffle and Cloudflare rightfully complaining about Verizon not adopting some of the techniques it likes to talk about, well, they had an outage of their own, and this time it wasn't BGP, no, it's our old friend Regex to blame. I had 99 problems and uh, tried to solve it with a Regex, now I've got 100 problems. Now, really, in this case, I think the rollout of these changes is probably what you should blame. Cloudflare is usually pretty good. You know, they they have a blog where they talk about a lot of their practices, and they have systems in place to prevent global deployments of most of their tech, right? So you can roll things out partially, maybe do blue-green, whatever technology or philosophy you want to apply. You only make changes to, to some of your systems, see how that goes, and then apply it further. Unfortunately... This change did not follow those practices. Now, it's it's not clear why. It's probably just some system that they, you know, that hadn't been updated yet or it was on some backlog somewhere. Unfortunately, when you're at the scale of Cloudflare, that has serious consequences. Well, what happened, Wes, is they deployed a new regex-based rule that was supposed to detect malicious JavaScript. And, uh, you know, the, the rule just did cause a nasty CPU spike. So all of a sudden you've got routers that are normally well within their operational capacity that are just absolutely pegged on CPU trying to process this regular expression looking for malicious JavaScript. So then they start trapping traffic. Um, it took them a little while to realize why they had this massive CPU spike on all their firewalls. And once they did, they issued a global kill on that rule and things went back to normal. Yeah, I, I did see they note that they had not seen these kinds of CPU issues before. And, you know, you'll always discover something new and fun that can break. That's just the nature of production. You know, Wes, the problems weren't limited to Verizon and Cloudflare either. We had problems with Google Cloud. Uh, Office 365 went down for a lot of users for several hours. And uh, probably the one that got the most visibility that week was uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram all just stopped displaying images for almost everybody for most of a day. Oh, yeah. And that's only one of their primary functions. Yeah. Yeah. People kind of notice it when Instagram doesn't show pictures. I don't think Facebook ever really did, you know, deliver a detailed postmortem of the kind that, uh, you know, companies like Cloudflare and, uh, you know, eventually Verizon do. But uh, I dug into it a little bit while it was broken on my own timeline. And what I was seeing is that uh, images were getting displayed with uh, different custom arguments and Facebook's own internal CDN. Uh, it's looking for arguments called OH and OE, and I don't know what those OH and OE arguments reference, but I do know if you get them wrong, if you feed them bad data or you just admit those arguments entirely, you get an HTTP 403 that says bad Earl timestamp. And when I looked at the code on my own timeline where images were broken, what I saw is that the anchor tags for the, you know, the, the clickable links to bring up those images in what Facebook calls theater mode, those had good timestamps in them. If you loaded the image with the timestamps from the anchor tag, everything would work properly. But if you loaded the image with the OH and OE arguments that were embedded in the actual image source tag itself, then you got a 403 bad roll timestamp. Now, one of the cool things about that, though, I had noticed quite some time ago that um, 
you know, if you if you actually look while the page is rendering in Facebook, you can you can see that the company is exposing the hidden alt tags for all of your images. Uh, every image will have an alt tag that says image may contain people or image may contain dogs, fireworks, buildings, you name it. Um, a lot of folks had not noticed those and noticed them the first time when that was literally all they could see about the image while these things were broken. Yeah, it's an interesting application. You know, they've got a they've got a lot of tech there to be able to provide some additional information. Might be handy if you're using something like a screen reader or going old school and using a text based terminal browser. Or you could just get creeped out that Facebook understands more than you thought it did about what's in your pictures. Yeah, this whole incident, all these incidents kind of stark reminder of the vast degree of centralization that happens. Now, BGP is is perhaps the exception. It's a result of you know, just the decentralized nature of the internet. But the the more we pile on to a select number of clouds and services, you know, providing transit and such between those clouds, these sorts of incidents, while don't happen very often, and, you know, those those companies generally have excellent engineering organizations, when they do happen, it just means the internet goes down. Let's turn now to a topic that really goes hand-in-hand with outages and network problems, and that's monitoring, right? The set of tools that you might use to help find these problems either before they really affect your customers or, you know, at least get, get told before the customer tells you. There's all kinds of different tools available from common open source stuff, new shiny tools, and a ton of proprietary options. Jim, you've got some servers over there. What are you using? I am like aggressively in your face old school with my monitoring. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the service that I rely on is Nagios. Uh, I have a Nagios server and all of my servers get pulled over WireGuard tunnels from my Nagios box. Oh, I love that. See, it's a little mix of, of modern and classic. Yeah, it's kind of nice doing it that way because the, uh, you know, the, so the individual servers that I monitor, I don't need to poke any holes to them, you know, through the organizational firewall because they just make connections outbound for WireGuard to, you know, my central monitoring network. And, uh, then the, of course, once you establish it, everything's bi-directional. So Nagios just does its active polling across those tunnels. So there's never any port forward this or set up a static route that. Everything just works. I just use the internal WireGuard addresses. Um, I've actually even got a private uh, .wg uh, DNS zone. So if I want to see, you know, what's happening at uh, client one's production server, I can literally just SSH client one prod zero .wg, and as long as I'm connected to my monitoring network, it works. Ooh, that sounds slick. Now, are there any sort of um, specific customizations you might use for Nagios? Maybe you could sort of describe uh, the the basic setup you have, especially if anyone out there is not familiar with Nagios. Yeah, sure. So, like I said, you know, it's it's aggressively old school. Um, everything with Nagios is uh, it's text based configs. And there is a learning curve, but it's uh, it's very easy to manage once you figure out what you're doing. The biggest trap that I see sysadmins falling into when they try to get started with Nagios is they make this one gigantic, you know, like 5,000 line Nagios.cfg file that like this one thing is supposed to do it all. Yikes. And you can do that, but, you know, you shouldn't. Um, it's a lot like if you look at an Ubuntu box that you install, uh, you know, Apache or Nginx on. 
you don't see just one, you know, Apache or Nginx config file. Ubuntu and uh, I believe Debian also break it up into a bunch of directories. So you'll have like Etsy Apache 2, Sites Dash Available, Etsy Apache 2, Sites Dash Enabled, which is symlinks from Sites Dash Available. The same thing for Conf Available and Enabled. Right. Ways to have some parts of your config that you need to change sometimes and other parts of your config that don't really fit or, you know, are separate, separate concerns. Yeah, exactly. So you may legitimately have, you know, hundreds or even thousands of lines of Apache configs, but you never have to look at more than, I don't know, maybe 50 or so, because they're all broken up into individual files that describe exactly what they're supposed to be. Here's the conf file for this site. Here's the conf file for that site. Here's the conf file for this plugin. Here's the conf file for that plugin. Well, it's not, uh, it's not as well documented and it's not automatically broken out for you like to, to that degree with Nagios, but you can do the exact same thing for yourself. Uh, if you set up Nagios on an Ubuntu machine like I do, your base config directory will be Etsy Nagios 3. Um, but underneath that, you have Etsy Nagios 3 conf.d. And not only can you put individual files which describe individual servers under comp.d, you can do better than that. Under comp.d, you can make directories for hosts, host groups, commands, uh, you know, plugins, templates, and you can put individual files of exactly all those kinds in there because what Nagios actually does is it grovels through every directory under conf.d and every file that it finds in any directory anywhere under conf.d that ends in a .cfg, it parses it as an additional source of configuration data. So in my own, I've got it broken down even further than that because, you know, I've got multiple clients. Sure, yeah. For each client, you, you'll, you would go to like, you know, Etsy Nagios 3 conf.d hosts client one hosts client two hosts client three and you know under client one there might be uh, client one dot prod zero dot config client one dot hotspare zero dot config so you've got all these relatively small individual files and better yet each of these files they all place the server in a server group so for for example one of my server groups is sanoid dash servers and Nagios already knows if this machine is in the group Sanoid servers, well, I should be monitoring ZFS snapshots. I should be monitoring ZFS pool health. I should be monitoring the uh, amount of free space available in all mounted file systems, you know, on down the line. So when you look at the individual file for client1.prod0.cfg, you might really not see anything but, you know, the host name which is actually going to be the exact same thing, client1.prod0.wg, because I already told you I set up all that you know private DNS with my private .wg top-level domain. Well, underneath that, the only thing you have to tell it is you know that it's in server group Sanoid servers. So it's very clean, very easy to read, very well organized. Um, but if you don't know that you're supposed to do it that way, I haven't really found any guides that make it obvious. Like, hey, you don't have to have this giant steaming pile of trash. You can organize, organize things nicely. And that's important if you're going to use this kind of stuff in production, right? It's, it's all well and good to have one comp file as you're learning and playing. You need to get serious with ways to actually manage that, especially maybe, maybe you have a team of people managing and making multiple changes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you can also, uh, isn't there a check command as well you can run that will help verify your Nagios configuration before you go push that out there? Uh, yes, there is. And uh, I am a lazy bugger and I'm horrible for not actually linting the config. After I add a new file, I tend to just go ahead and reload the service and uh, it'll complain at me if it didn't like what happened and then I can undo whatever it was I did. Um, I, you know, I do want to mention also, though, you know, while we're talking about this aggressively old school nature of it, 
One of the things that's very old school about Nagios that I actually like a lot, when you look at most of the big monitoring services like OpenNMS or Zabbix or what have you, or you know even all over on the Windows side like SolarWinds, most of them are designed to automatically discover servers on your network and automatically discover services that they can monitor and just kind of glob it all up and start monitoring everything that they can find. And you can look at any of all that and see whatever you want. It's, it's a weird interactive sort of console that you're operating, making changes in a GUI, maybe. And you're right, it can be nice, but there are some significant downsides there, too. Yeah, the the big downside for me is that, you know, when it's automatically discovering things, well, maybe now it's monitoring stuff that I actually don't give a crap about. And maybe it's not finding some machines that it really should, that I very much care about if those machines aren't getting monitored and if they should have problems. Now, with Nagios, you're actually having to set up that little config file, as simple as it may be, if you've set up all your templates properly. You set up that individual config file for every server. But the nice thing about that is that means you can look at your Nagios config and you know, okay, these are all the machines that each one of these, I actually directly set it up. And at that time that I did that, I looked at it and I made sure everything's working right. Now, in the future, if something there doesn't work right, I know I'll be notified about it because I actually went through and did these things and verified my config was good. If you're automatically just sucking up lists of machines to look at and things to look at on those machines, you don't really know for sure what you are or aren't looking at. And that just makes my teeth itch. I can't have it. I like your style, Jim. Now, what sort of stuff are you monitoring here? You mentioned hosts. You know, what are some common alerts that you use? And I'm also curious, are you using NERPY? Maybe you could talk about that too. That's actually a great question, Wes. Yes, I am using NERPY, which is getting kind of long the tooth. Um, NERPY is the Nagios remote plugin executable system. And it basically allows you to just run a very simple shell script or Perl script or what have you on your client. And then just have, you know, that script look at whatever it wants to look at and then uh, exit with either the zero, a one or a two for OK, warn or critical and an explanatory text message of why it said OK, warn or crit. That's all NRPE really does. There is a new agent, though. There's now something called NCPA, Nagios Cross-Platform Agent. And uh, NCPA works for Windows, Linux, or OS X, and it's a lot shinier and a lot prettier than NRPE, and it also seems to be a lot better supported. Like, if you wanted to use NRPE on Windows before, you had to use this third-party app that was not directly supported by Nagios themselves called NSClient++. And it, it works, but, you know, it's a little crusty, whatever. Um, NCPA is a lot nicer. I'm not using it in production yet, but, like, when you install the NCPA daemon on a system, uh, it actually installs a web server that you can directly browse to that web server and see uh, in a very pretty, like, human-readable, like, you can see a graph of the state of all your systems over time without doing anything else, as well as that data being pullable remotely by your actual Nagio server. It's going to, you know, notify you if things break or things go down. So I'm, I, I haven't really gotten my feet wet with it yet, but I'm pretty excited about it. Wow, this looks great. I think this is new since the last time I used Nagios. That's exciting to see. Now, there's one other thing that we ought to talk about with Nagios, and that's how are you actually getting the alerts to begin with? I mentioned that also because this is a thing that I see so many sysadmins getting desperately, desperately wrong. Wes, are you monitoring anything automatically these days? What do you mean automatically? Well, I mean, do you have an automated system, be it Prometheus or Nagios or whatever, that's that's generating alerts if stuff breaks? Yes, I do. And I've used many such systems in the past. 
How do you get those alerts? When something breaks, how are you notified? Oh, boy, I've used all kinds of systems from integration with ticketing systems. Uh, Slack is a common one. I've seen Telegram and, of course, the ever-popular email. Okay, so... What happens if you're not looking at Slack? You know, then I I might miss that alert. Now, you know, some places might have uh, automated uh, like a phone call or other backup systems. But for my personal infrastructure, I don't have any of that. Yeah. I mean, what happens if Slack is down? Uh, we use Slack over at Ars Technica. And I got to tell you, it's been pretty hanky for the last couple of weeks. It's nothing on the R side. It's, you know, literally Slack has been a little dubious. Things have disconnected for periods of time. It hasn't been that great. And, you know... The one that you kind of buried all the way down at the bottom, email, that's that's what I see over and over and over again. Well, you know, things if things break, I get an email. Well, what happens when the email doesn't work? Yes, right. What happens when your, you know, your SMTP alert gets spam filtered somewhere or, you know, the remote DNS isn't right for the box that generated the alert or there's just there's a million ways for it to break. And the answer is, well, then I I, I just don't know. Like nothing happens, and because nothing happened, I assumed everything is fine. Now, the way that I actually get my alerts, remembering I use a Nagio server, I have an app on my phone called ANAG. ANAG is a free open source Android app, and ANAG goes and actively pulls my Nagio server and gets answers on all the services that the Nagio server monitors. And if any of those services is down, then ANAG starts vibrating and pissing me off and in my pocket and I pull it out and I find out what's up. Now, the great thing about that is also what happens if my Nagio server itself goes down? Well, ANAG can't reach it. So ANAG in my pocket starts vibrating and making noises and I pull it out and find out what's up. Either way, I know for a fact I have a problem. Now, the only thing that I have to be sure of is that I have my phone and it works. And I don't know about you, Wes, but uh, I look at my phone a lot. I generally know if that's broken. All the darn time. And, you know, that's a great line of reasoning because it, in all of this, you know, the weakest link in the chain analogy, I think, is, is totally spot on. And you need something monitoring the monitors, so to say. I hadn't heard of that tool, but it's great to have something that works so well right on your phone. For you folks that have made the sad decision to use iPhones, um, I can't recall the name of it. Uh, there is something similar to ANAG on the iOS side. Uh, the last time I needed to find one, I think it I think it did require a purchase. It was like a five or ten dollar purchase, but yeah, it seemed to work well enough. Yeah, maybe you can expense it. All right, Wes. Well, you know, enough of all my super crusty old sysadmin guy stuff. Uh, I know you've got to be using something newer and shinier than what I'm doing. So what do you got going on on your end? Oh, boy. Yes. You know, I've been I've been playing with modern systems for, oh, gosh, a long time now and there are a, there are a ton of options and nothing fits every use case. I just want to say that right off the bat, right? Whatever you're doing, it may need a specific thing. You have different tolerances, maybe a, a more, something more like a network monitoring system, like you talked about, like Libre NMS, for example. That might work great if you're doing a lot of networking stuff and you want it to auto discover, or you might want something super configurable and not doing any magic, like Jim and his Nagios setup. But I thought something that would contrast nicely with Nagios and that has been getting a lot of attention lately, well, that's Prometheus. It's graduated from the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, and it's kind of grown up in the Kubernetes era. So it takes something of a different approach to monitoring than Nagios. As, as you were describing, Jim, you know, Nagios, y- you execute checks. So you can, you know, have a, have a system, maybe it's using NERPY or it's calling some web API. 
one of the great things about Nagios is you know you can it's a simple protocol to work with, so you can write your own checks very easily, and there's plugins for basically anything that you might want. You go run the check, and then you evaluate it on whatever your alerting criteria is, and maybe you have other stuff, you know, warning and critical, and maybe you have a certain number of times that it needs to fail before you actually trip the alarm. There's all kinds of options there. And then, you know, you make a decision about does this alert or not. One of the consequences of growing up in the Kubernetes era is we have a lot of containerized applications spewing out metrics and logs, and we need ways to handle that. And so instead of being focused on checks, Prometheus integrates with metrics. Now, the the specifics of it are, are somewhat less important. In this case, Prometheus is usually working on a poll system, so you, you configure a bunch of endpoints that you want to go talk to, servers, for instance. And then Prometheus, on a schedule, will go walk around and go talk to your endpoints, ask them about all their metrics. They'll also check, right? It can tell you if they don't happen to respond, as you probably care about that as well. But instead of just right, running checks right there, it takes all that information and dumps it into its own little storage base. Then you can configure alerts based on a time series of data. So if you've ever used a system, I know there's one for Nagios, for instance, that integrates with other time series databases, for example, Graphite. You could use that to write a check that says, you know, oh, hey, you know, compute the average over this time for this, this variable and then alert if it breaks this condition. Prometheus totally has that. Another factor that makes it really great is you can write cross-check alerts too, right? So you can reference multiple different metrics at the same time, and only if all three of those things is busted do you actually trigger an alert. And what I'd been waiting to see way back in the day when I first started doing monitoring and looking at metrics and logs was multi-dimensional data. So in Graphite, you usually just have this this one little endpoint. It's a simple hierarchy that you work through to label what this is. You know, it's hostname.cpu.cpu0.load or whatever the statistic is. Prometheus lets you have all kinds of extra dimensionality on that. So you can have other criteria, metadata, extra information tracked right there. So what you get is this rich data set about all the machines and endpoints and APIs that you're monitoring all at your fingertips and then with a nice little editor and then you can compose in, it's not my favorite query language, but they've, they've got a nice little language that lets you write these things pretty simply. You can reference the metric names, set up some conditions, right? So, oh, I, I want to make sure that the, you know, this part of the histogram never breaks through this threshold. If it does, here's the criteria. And then it can integrate with other alerting or monitoring systems that you might have down the road. And what I, I, I played with Prometheus and of course, we've talked about things like net data, Jim. Oh, yeah. Until recently, I hadn't combined those. So one of the great things that net data now has, and actually, in fairness, has had for a while, it functions as a Prometheus exporter. So you, if any nodes you've got net data running on, it's already ready for Prometheus. All you have to do is get Prometheus set up and point it at net data, and you can suck in all that great information. Ooh, net data, all the things. Exactly. You know, I got to admit, Wes, uh, something kind of clicked for me when you talked about, you know, Kubernetes making Prometheus look so attractive to you and, you know, automatic discovery. Uh, I, I make no bones about it. I'm an old school guy. I absolutely bought into the concept that, you know, your server should be cattle, not pets. But, uh, you know, Kubernetes kind of takes a step beyond that. Uh, you know, with Kubernetes, your servers, they're, they're not cattle either. It's more like, you know, farmed bacteria. You kind of don't care so much whether, you know, individual uh 
VMs or containers or whatever you want to call them in our Kubernetes live or die. It's just, you know, the health of kind of the service, the herd as a whole. You've got this constant churn, and I can see that you need automatic discovery for that. Um, I don't know if that's a world I'm ready to live in yet, but I get it. One nice thing you'll appreciate too, um, the, the config is, is pretty simple. It's, it's just a YAML file and it totally works statically too. So there's a place for you to just add a static list of hosts and, and get going. I also like that since it's written in Go, it's really easy to install. I mean, there's packages and all the, the usual things you'll find, but there's also just an easy tarball you can download. It's got the binary and an example configuration file. You run it and you can start playing with it just like that. Oh, cool. So I can just pipe curl to sudo bash. You sure can, Jim. Although you shouldn't. No. For anyone who's not sure, I was being sarcastic. Now, one other thing I always like to add to a stack like this, and that's Grafana, or as a good friend of mine once called it, sexy graphite. Now, you don't have to use it with graphite. Grafana is a dashboard for time series and more. So if you have something like graphite or an RRD database or now a SQL database or Elasticsearch or Prometheus, Grafana is a great layer that sits on top and lets you make all kinds of different dashboards that can tell you, you know, when when your disk is full. It can have simple diagrams to show you the different latencies involved in HTTP requests, all kinds of stuff. And it integrates with whatever you like. I think of it as a way to get those nice net data graphs, but for aggregates about your whole fleet instead of just one system. I still want my phone to vibrate when the hard drive's full. As well you should. And Jim, I'm happy to note, I've, I've seen a bunch of open source projects out there to sort of combine Nagios and Prometheus-based systems. So there's, there's a NERPY exporter. There's another thing that lets you write checks using Nagios, you know, for Nagios. That'll go check the Prometheus data store. So you could maybe try playing with it that way too. All kinds of interesting stuff. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. We're just lucky to live in a world with tons of great open source monitoring software. And I think that just underscores the point. There's no reason you shouldn't be using some of it. You can't be a sysadmin if you're not monitoring your stuff. Exactly. Since I'm clearly getting distracted playing with these awesome Grafana dashboards, I think that's going to do it for this episode of TechSnap. Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate you. If you'd like to stay tuned for more, get the past episodes, or contact us, just go to techsnap.systems. You can also find the show notes for this episode, techsnap.systems slash 407. If you'd like to check out other fine Jupiter Broadcasting productions, well, that's easy too, jupiterbroadcasting.com. And the whole network, well, we're on Twitter, of course, at JupiterSignal. I'm there as well, at Wes Payne, and Jim, your at JRSSNet. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.